Zechariah, these last three books are in a pretty narrow window of history, whereas before we might skip 50 or 100 years between minor prophets. Now we're in a pretty narrow window. And Zechariah was a contemporary of Haggai. He was writing at the same time, dealing with the same circumstances as Haggai, which we covered last week. So now I will put you all on the spot with the incredibly difficult question, what does that mean then? What was happening in Haggai that he spoke to that now I'm telling you Zechariah is speaking to the same thing? Or the not building of the temple. The, no, the not building of the temple. The laziness, the apathy toward God. God gives them all these blessings through Darius, through others, the ability to return to the land, the ability to return, rebuild the temple, return to worship, all the things they were whining and complaining about before. We can't be faithful because we're in exile. Oh, woe is us. God's not nice to us. We can't be faithful because God put us in these hard circumstances. And then God makes their circumstances do a 180. They get to go back to the land. Now they are being given materials from the nations that are their enemies to provide uh, so that they can rebuild the temple. And they don't do it. They lay the foundation and they stop. And so these two prophets are uh, two men that God used to speak to them in their apathy and their religious indifference. All right, let's talk about the, the historical situation. A contemporary of Haggai, as I said. Zechariah begins preaching two months after Haggai preaches. It is that close in time. And he's encouraging the people to resume their work on rebuilding the temple. Let's get back to it. And Zechariah is a much longer book, though, longer than many of the minor prophets. And it's a message that's in two parts. You have the first eight chapters where Zechariah puts a date on it. And so we know that these messages, these sermons were delivered to the people between 520 and 518 BC. And then you get into the second part of Zechariah, chapters 9 through 14, where we don't have any historical references to kind of clue us in when exactly were these messages delivered. And when we get to those messages, they'll be of a kind of different character anyway. So we'll sort of work through some of the, the challenges or difficulties with those passages. But it's easy to divide Zechariah into these two sections. One through eight, very straightforward sermons. Well, we'll get to that in a minute. But in terms of their organization, very straightforward sermons. And then nine through 14, no specific historical reference, gets a little chaotic. The theme of Zechariah is very straightforward. God is going to preserve his remnant from all the world powers which threaten their destruction. That's what the people are whining about, even when, when God has given them these advantages, and then they become apathetic, and God brings judgment on them for their apathy. He raises up these world powers to be his instruments of discipline against his people, but he also always wants his remnant, his people, to remember that those things do not ultimately threaten them. All of the powers and principalities of the world that God may use to bring judgment on the world 
even on the world inside his own people, those things do not threaten the remnant. They can only hurt your stuff, your body. They cannot take your soul. And so that's why he says uh, in the New Testament, you should fear one and not fear the other. Because if you have to put things in context of what really matters, it's not your stuff and it's not your body or your health. Uh, And so the remnant should always be secure. The messages of the first chapters, one through eight, begins with a call to repentance. So let's start, Justin, will you read verses one through six? In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, As the Lord of hosts proposed to deal with us for our ways and our deeds, so has he dealt with us. So you have a call to repentance at the beginning of this, and we'll talk more about repentance throughout the book. And you've got this historical reference of the prophets crying out to the fathers and Uh, In some cases, the fathers didn't listen, but they actually did listen a few generations before this. But what is the, what is stressed in that call to repentance? It's right there at the end. What does God want to make sure in preparation for the prophet's message to come forth? This is right before the prophet will give all of these messages. What's God stressing there at the end? It's the authority of the message. Prophets die. The word of the Lord does not. The word of the Lord brings repentance. It brings about change or it brings about judgment. But the word of the Lord has power. And so the authority of the message is the emphasis here at the beginning that you need to take these words seriously and they will have an effect on you. And that's what the word of God does is It has an effect. We hope that it is a justifying and sanctifying effect, that it calls people to repentance and that it draws them closer to Christ. But even when it doesn't have that effect, it still has an effect, which is judgment. And that will come up again in the sermon that um, you all know the passage, the word of the Lord goes forth and does not return to him empty for it accomplishes the purpose for which it was sent. It never falls flat. (laughs) It does exactly what God intended for it to do. And that should give us hope and comfort that the word is powerful to bring about repentance and sanctification. And it should terrify us that the word has the power of God's judgment behind it. But the authority is in the word of God itself, 
Now fast forward, think about John in the back of your brain and Jesus saying that he is the word, the word made flesh, the authority and the revelation of God sent to the world and the world will either be saved or condemned on the basis of how they respond to the word of God sent into the world. You see how that works out? So very gospel focused uh, as the whole Bible is. It's, it's all about the gospel. You just have to see how far away from Jesus you are to see how clear it will be. Uh, so the, the authority of the message is what's stressed in the call here. Then we get into these chapters that have eight visions. And we don't have time this morning to read all of them. So we'll read three and then we'll just explain the other. And there's sort of the, the good news, bad news situation about these visions. The bad news is it is very difficult for us to read them and have any idea what they are talking about by the nature of the vision itself. These multicolored horses are about to show up and then you're like, what does that have to do it? I don't know, but here's the good news. All the visions tell you what they're about. (laughs) And so we might not see the connection between the imagery or the analogy that's used and the point, the message of the vision. That's not something that our uh, Western 2,500 year later brains can, can piece together without a significant study of ancient Near Eastern poetry, which I don't think is what you signed up for this morning. But they do tell us in the visions what these visions are about. So we'll capture each one of those. But I do want to read some of them. So Jake, will you read the first one? Uh, verse seven is an introduction. And then the first vision starts chapter one, verse eight, and it goes all the way through 17. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shebat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, saying, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red sorrel and white horses. Then I said, What are these, my lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, against which you have been angry these seventy years? And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, Cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. And I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts, My city shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion, and again choose Jerusalem. So what are the meanings of each of the colored horses? I don't know. I I don't know. I'm not even sure Zechariah knew, which might be the reason why he says, Lord, what is the meaning of this? And the angel gives the meaning of this. But, okay, I don't know. It doesn't matter. He does tell me the meaning of the vision. And the vision focuses on the fate of the Gentile nation, that God is angry with these nations. 
He's angry for their interference in the work of his people. And God himself will ensure that the temple is rebuilt. God himself will make sure that this task comes through to completion. Again, great tie-in here to the, the sermon text where we wonder how will the ministry of the apostles be effective? Think about what the apostles are being told to do. It's 11, they'll add Matthias and Paul later, but at this point, Judas has left. It's 11 disciples, and all they have to do is take the gospel of Jesus Christ, this Jewish carpenter from Bethlehem who was crucified for treason, all they have to do is claim to the world that he was raised from the dead and get a bunch of people to believe that he is the long-awaited Messiah from the religion of the Jews who already were super unpopular and in exile and put down. All they have to do is to make that message magnified to the ends of the earth. Piece of cake. Not going to happen. You look at these stumbling, bumbling doofuses and you think, there's no chance. How will it happen? And in today's sermon text, Jesus tells them, I'm going to go and I'm going to send you the helper. And that's what's going to make all this work. Well, here God is saying, how are you going to get this temple rebuilt? How are you going to withstand the nation's assault against you? And the answer is me. I do it. I'll do it for my remnant, not for nominal Israel, for true Israel. They're the ones that need not fear, and God will see and make sure that this is done. So that's the first vision, the four multicolored horses. Then there's one after that we're not going to read, which is the four horns and the four craftsmen. It tells us that the message of this vision is that those who oppose God's people will be crushed. God will crush his enemies. Don't worry about it. All right, the third one. Let's read this. Fagan, will you read 2, 1 through 13? And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then I said, Where are you going? And he said to me, To measure Jerusalem, and to see what its width and its length. And behold, an angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him, and said to him, Run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls, because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will... And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. Up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord, for I spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. For thus says the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me, to the nations who plundered you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who serve them. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. For behold, I come, and I will dwell with you in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day, and shall my and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will inherit Judah as its portion in the Holy Land, and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. He tells us this is about Judah being populated and protected. And what what does that mean? Well, that means 
the safe place is within God's protection. So this is a piece of imagery that we understand from ancient literature, which is the concept of measuring something. When something is measured in a vision, it is being, it's like you're building a protective wall around it as you measure it. So something is measured to indicate a place of protection. And what God does here is measure Judah. And so he is building his own wall of defenses around it and letting you know that only that which is within his protection is protected. And so this is a nice contrast to lots of other places in the prophets where we see people and God's people believe that their protection comes from somewhere else. These armies, these fortresses, these walls, this technology, our sophistication, our treaties. We've read about all of these things in the Minor Prophets. And here, Zechariah says, gives, receives a vision from the Lord and says to the people, that's not what will keep you safe. The only thing that will keep you safe is within the boundaries of what God has measured out and said, this is where safety is. Now, this is probably a good time to remind you we're going through these visions, we're talking about safety, we're talking about being connected with God's people, but how did this book start? How does one get that safety? How does one exist within the walls of Jerusalem? How does one align themselves with the, the protection of God will judge the nations and I won't be a part of the nations at that point, I'll be part of God's people? Where did all this start? The authority of the word. The authority, but what was the call to the people? Repent. Repent. And once again, this is the drumbeat of the minor prophets. Repentance is what makes the difference between my people and not my people. From a human perspective, what must I do to belong to God and, or, or not? And the answer is not personal holiness. The answer is not Bible verse memorization. The answer is not even worship and church attendance. Although the minor prophets praise all of those things as being good and helpful. But the difference and where it must begin is repentance. And repentance is putting yourself under the authority of that word. God gets to decide what is right and what's not right. That ties into the sermon passage too. How do we judge righteousness? The spirit through the ministry of Christ. The spirit through the word. He is the word. It's very important to not forget as we go through these. It's no throwaway that Jesus is called the word. <laughs> That's really, really important for understanding Christianity. He is the word made flesh. And we bring ourselves under submission to the word, which is him, which is him manifest in for us in the pages of scripture and the work of the spirit in our hearts and lives through the work of scripture and the word of scripture. So there's a fourth one we're not going to read, but uh, chapter three, one through 10, this vision of the restoration of the high priest. And this is how Israel will be cleansed by the grace of God. And this is where you get the coming branch where, again, as we're working our way through the minor prophets, you get more and more sort of explicit references to one who is coming, and that one who is coming is going to make a significant difference in redemptive history. And here in Zechariah 3, it's the coming branch. Vision 5. 
So let's read this one. Renee, will you read uh, chapter 4, 1 through 14? And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me, like a man who is wakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? I said, I see and behold a lampstand all of gold with a bowl on the top of it, and seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my lord. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amidst shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice, and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord, which range through the whole earth. And I said to him, What are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? And a second time I answered and said to him, What are these two branches of the olive trees which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? He said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said, These are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. All right, let's start with just the Old Testament application here because we can't skip that. It's what it's primarily about. The temple will not be completed by human strength. The obstacles will be removed by God. The spirit of God, which is this supply of oil, will enable God's people to fulfill their task. And the responsibility of the people is to trust in the power of God to make this happen and therefore keep working. Don't get discouraged. Don't despise the day of small things. A little bit of progress, brick upon brick, the spirit of God will not run out and this work will be completed. That's the emphasis here, um, that in their context, they are to keep working and they're to do this thing. The faithful remnant are the ones who are going to do this. And so they are to trust in God so that it gets done. That is the primary application of this vision. But you are nuts if you don't connect that to the beginning of Revelation. And what are the seven lampstands at the beginning of Revelation? The churches. And the idea that this oil, which is the spirit of God, fuels the ministry of God's people and does not run out, and what God will accomplish through his church will be accomplished through the Spirit, and his people should trust that the Spirit will do this, and they should not get discouraged, and they should not despise the day of small things. It is directly tied to the John text that we'll we'll cover in the sermon, and to us in our context. How in the world will a church, any church, And how in the world will the church, capital C, survive in this world? In this crazy, church-hating world, how does a church 
and the church survive. The Spirit of God will do this, and it does not run out. So don't despise the day of small things. Be encouraged. Keep working. It's the power of the Spirit that will keep you working. That's vision five. Vision six, flying scroll. Those who reject God's law and covenant are cursed. And that's in uh, the beginning of chapter five there. Then you have another one, which is the ephah and the woman. The theme of this is that wickedness will be removed from God's kingdom. We can't remove wickedness ourselves. I've told the story, the analogy before of in a chemistry lab in college, I was the doofus who dropped the forceps into the vat of the really expensive, perfectly pure chemical. And I mean, hundreds of dollars wasted by me dropping these stupid forceps. And I said to the professor, isn't there anything we can do to make it clean? And she said, no, once it's impure, it's impure. You can't make it pure again. We can't do that. The spirit and power of God can actually take impurity and do away with it. And so we need the power and the spirit of God to remove wickedness, unrighteousness, impurity from his kingdom. And he will do it. He promises that he will do it. And without him doing it, it would not be done. And then the last one, uh, the four chariots, chapter six. God's messengers are sent out to accomplish his purposes. So those are the visions. And the visions are sandwiched by exactly the same theme, which is repentance. Zechariah begins with this call to repentance and insistence on repentance. Then it has all these visions about what God will do with unrighteousness and with with his people. And then you get to chapter seven and you're back and chapter eight as well. Seven and eight are additional warnings and calls to repentance because that's what it's all about. Um, Nick, will you read chapter seven, two through 14? Now the people of Bethel had sent Sherazim and Regimalite and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord, saying to the priests of the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, Should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, Say to all the people of the land and the priests, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh for these 70 years, was it, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Were not these words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous with their cities around her and the south and the lowering and the lowland were inhabited? And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of your none of you devise evil against another in your heart. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore great anger came from the Lord of hosts. As I called, and they would not hear, so they called, 
and I would not hear, says the Lord of hosts. And I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations that they had not known. Thus the land they left was desolate, so that no one went to and fro, and the pleasant land was made desolate. Do not be confused about repentance, lest ye be confused. The prophet Zechariah wants you to know that insincere repentance is not repentance. Doesn't count. Not effective. The problems in this passage, the the problems with the way the people would respond to the call to repentance and the warnings and the visions is a lack of obedience and insincerity in, in particularly in this passage, he talks about fasting, insincere fasting, because they did not listen to God's word. So this indictment from 2 through 14, it's a call to repentance, but it's also an indictment against how the people have responded, how some of them choose to respond, which is this insincerity, this hypocrisy, where you go through the motions of serving God, you're not actually obedient to things that matter, taking care of the widow and the orphan and the fatherless and the looking out for people that are being put down upon. And yet you think that you've repented or you think you've done what God requires. And the only way you can be that deceived is to ignore the word of God. Because the word of God is very clear. We talked about several weeks ago. It's not either or, it's both and. It's not the mechanics of worship and the practice of worship doesn't matter. All that matters is social justice take care of people. That's not what the Bible says at all. But the Bible says if you engage in the acts of worship with a heart that does not love people and care for people the way God says people are to be loved, your worship isn't real. Because the kind of heart that produces sincere worship also produces good works. And you can use one to identify the condition of the other. So the lack of love for people demonstrates that your worship is false, even if you're doing the acts of worship. So what are we supposed to do? Well, then don't waste your time with worship. Just do the act. No, have the heart that does both because this is about the heart. Loving people, loving God, and worship is a great way to reveal the condition of our heart. And so that's their problem. They don't listen to the word of God. Questions about the first half or so of Zechariah, these visions that are bookended by this call to repentance. Do you have any quick advice on, you know, if we're, this is again a personal question, but people who, the repentance is not there on a personal level, but they're exhibiting these signs of... uh, People who do good works, but don't have personal awareness of sin. Yeah. Yeah. So as you have, as you, as you do that analysis, we are thankful by common grace that people who don't love God do some good works. There are lots of charities in this world, individuals in this world who accomplish good things 
even though they don't love Christ and they're not doing them out of love of God and neighbor. And so we're thankful by common grace that that happens. We'd rather live in a world with that than the alternative where every unregenerate person is as wicked as they could possibly be all the time. That is not the world we want to live in. But if we're doing a spiritual repentance analysis, the why matters. Why are you doing what you're doing? And if you get into that conversation with someone, you will ultimately find self-serving rather than God-serving drivers. And one cannot be repentant and be driven by self-serving. And that's to understand the, the moment when you're talking to them. That's right. And it's not to dismiss or be ungrateful for the good that they're doing. But it is a practical, functional good that is separate from a spiritual reality. And in fact, they're living as hypocrites because the good they do makes no sense in their worldview. We would rather they be inconsistent hypocrites than consistent marauders. Far too easily, I just don't do it right, basically. Yeah, well, we have membership cards. Welcome to the club. All right, let's talk about the back half of this book. Zechariah 9 through 14 is a tough nut to crack. These chapters are broadly about the full restoration of God's people. So this is the part of the message where we don't have dates or historical markers. We don't know exactly when this was delivered, but you can read these chapters and clearly find that it's about the restoration of God's people. It's a very important section of scripture. And the reason I say that is because it's the most quoted section of the prophets in Jesus' passion narratives. So when you're reading the Gospels and the description of Jesus' passion, there are more references to these chapters of Zechariah than anything else in the prophets. So these chapters are important. Clearly, John, in his vision of uh, that he's given for the book of Revelation is it's all really tied together. <laughs> Revelation and this section of Zechariah have a lot of overlap. It's a similar vision that the Lord is giving to different uh, prophets. So lots of good things to say about Zechariah 9 through 14. No surprise. It's scripture. We, sh- we should uh, treat it as such. There are some difficulties here, though. The hardest ones for us, one is the events are obscure and we can't really tie them to specific moments in history. So the specific judgments or blessings that are mentioned, the way we normally can tie it, yes, to a very forward-looking return of Christ, but normally we also have an intermediate where we say, oh, this is what the Medes and the Persians are going to do. That's sort of the first level of prophetic fulfillment. We don't have that with this stuff. We can't, uh, we, we can't identify what that is. It may be due to the fact that this section of Zechariah is very much given from a heavenly standpoint and not an earthly standpoint. And it may be that that heavenly point of view doesn't concern itself with particular kings and kingdoms, and that's a something on purpose about the vision, but we don't know. But it does seem to start in history and then pretty quickly shades into eschatological matters and end time stuff. And it's just, it's just difficult to pick out what's happening there. It's also a little difficult in that the conditions change a lot for God's people. At the beginning of this section, there's victory for God's people. 
and the shepherd comes, but then the shepherd is rejected and the evil forces gain control and God has to intervene to reestablish the kingdom of God under its shepherd. And so there's this complexity of this sort of back and forth that can give the impression that God is not in control of the whole thing, that it's actually a, a struggle as opposed to what we know to be true, which is God gets what he wants. It's not a struggle. And then third is just, there's a lack of order, which our Western brains, it it is chaotic. Zechariah 9 through 14 is chaotic. It is weaving in and out of different events and prophecies. And and it is, it doesn't seem to be a coherent, there's, there's, there's a lack of order. There's abrupt changes of subject matter. One minute we're talking about this, next moment we're talking about that. And then we're jumping back to the other thing. It's tough. It, it is just a chaotic section of the book. So we know it's important. We know what the main theme is. We understand how it's connected to Jesus' passion narratives and to Revelation. And then we just get confused because <laughs> it's hard. It's hard. So there is lots we understand. Don't, don't, uh, don't think I'm saying that this whole section is just out of our grasp. It begins with the judgment of the nations. So beginning there in chapter 9, it's very clearly about the nations being judged by God. And it ends with the salvation of the nations. So that's kind of the nice bookends of this section that reading backwards what we know about Christ and the church onto it, we can categorize that and say, yeah, God is coming in judgment against the nations Only his people will be saved and protected. But what we come to learn through the gospel is that being his people is not about being Israel. In fact, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Every tribe, tongue, and nation. And so in that sense, there is the salvation of the nations, which is not salvation for all people in all places and all times. It's salvation from all people, all places and all times. The the people of God will be made up of people from every tribe, tongue and nation and every period of history in the world. So that's these nice bookends. This section of Zechariah also has some main themes that are repeated again and again. In fact, every section of 9 through 14, you could put into one of these three buckets. It's either about the Lord's representative, his king or his shepherd. Those terms are used a lot. Or it's about Israel's war and victory, true Israel. Or it's about God's judgment against idols. And everything or nearly everything in these chapters can fit into one of those three categories. And there's a connecting thread through all of these chapters, which is that for God's people to triumph, God must deal with their enemies. We will never be fully restored, fully safe. This world will never be fully redeemed until God's enemies are dealt with. That is a part of redemption history. And so that flows through all of this. And again, with the bookends, his enemies are the world, those people who are in rebellion against God. But it will also be the fact that that is not a nationalistic endeavor, that people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will make up the world, but will also make up the true people of God. A couple big sections in this last part, the first that I'm going to draw attention to is God restoring his people through his 
king. Karen, will you read chapter 9, verses 9 and 10? Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle of bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So this is really the, the centerpiece of this poem about the coming king. And it's about the character of the king, that God's king is just and that God's king is humble and that the status of the king is dependent on divine action. This is God's representative who will come to his people in justice and in humility. Uh, so the king, sort of that entry into Jerusalem and this idea that the way God will restore his people will be through the king that he sends uh, is, a, is a big part of chapter 9 there. You also have from 9-11 to chapter 11, verse 3, this whole section has this restoration of the people through Yahweh's intervention. The way that Yahweh will be, the way that God's people will be restored will be that God will take action. And it's such an incredible reminder. Think about how connected it is. How, how are God's people going to be safe? He's going to put them within the walls that he measures out. How is the temple going to be finished? He is going to bring the wealth of the nations in, and he is going to send his spirit as the oil that is the fuel that gets the thing built and finished. And so all throughout Zechariah, which is why it's picked up in the Gospels, which is why it's picked up in Revelation, which is a book to the church after Jesus has been raised, is the Spirit of God will do it. If it's supposed to be done, if God promised that it will get done by the church or by his people, he will do it. And so in this case, the restoration of his people is going to happen because God is going to intervene. And so this section in chapters 9, 10, and 11 goes back and forth between a lot of small themes that fit into this bucket. There's war and victory in war that God will defend his people and triumph them. It's, it's God's intervention through the cosmos um, where, where it's such a good reminder. All the earth is the Lord's. And so we look at something and say, it can't happen. That's not possible. And God laughs. He laughs. It's all his. All of it does what he wants it to do. You don't tell him what he can and can't do with his stuff. He will do what he wants with his stuff. And he will especially do those things which will bring about the fulfillment of his promises. This, this passage talks about the prosperity and the safety of those who are returned from captivity at a time where they're going to feel very vulnerable and even so, they should feel safe because they are within the measured walls of God's people. In chapter 10, verses 2 and 3, there's this warning and reminder. Pam, will you read that? Chapter 10, 2 and 3. Okay. Thousands of gods utter nonsense and the designers see lies. They tell false dreams and give empty consolation. Therefore, the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. My anger is hot against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders. For the Lord of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like his majestic stead in battle. The prophets, the false prophets, 
the ungodly priests failed to give the people the word of God. And so what did the people do in response? They go look for the word of somebody else. If people don't get the word of God, they still have questions and they go look for answers. They still have needs. They go look for resolution of their needs elsewhere. So they go to these diviners. They go to these idols. And I think Zechariah is pretty clear about the worthlessness of diviners and idols. It's just empty. It's useless. But he doesn't. The people are responsible for going to those things, but that's not his focus. His focus is on the false prophets and priests and their failure to give the people the word of God. Because if you give the people the word of God, they have the answers to those questions. They don't need to go looking at diviners. And when we are confused, (laughs) we better make sure that we started to address our confusion with the word of God. Other resources can be true because they're derivative of the word of God. Other resources can be helpful because they're based on the word of God. But we need to start with the word of God. When we're looking for answers, we don't need to start with what the world has to say. That's diviners and idols. We need to start with what God has to say and then go from there. And when we don't, we're confused. And it says people walk around, sheep without a shepherd. They're just lost. They're just lost. Why? No shepherds, bad shepherds. And so that's chapter 14. God sets these cosmic forces in motion, transforms the world, destroys his enemies. The covenant goes out. The 14 is just a recapitulation of everything we've talked about. All these themes sort of brought together for the Lord's return that the Mosaic covenant will be made universal across the Lord. He will do this. He will use the cosmic forces to bring it about. It's all his. And through that will come transformation. And that is the connection to Revelation. So let's finish there, Daphne. Revelation 21, verses 22 to 27. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. So we don't have time to go through the comparison. It might be a good study for a Sunday afternoon if you find yourself with half an hour of taking Zechariah 14 and taking this part of Revelation 21 and looking that in both The nations will walk in the light of the new Jerusalem, the universality of God's covenant. It's not nationalistic. It's about repentance and those who belong to God by faith. Nations and kings will bring their glory and their honor and the wealth to the new Jerusalem. Uh, Nothing that defiles will be there. It will be perfectly pure because God will have dealt with the impurity and taken away. And those who are outside are the disobedient. Because again, this obedience being tied to repentance. If repentance is sincere, obedience is forthcoming. If repentance is sincere, worship is genuine. Ineffective, non-heartfelt worship comes from a lack of repentance. 
A lack of obedience and a lack of holiness in our walk comes from a lack of repentance. And so we use one to identify the other, and then we fix it. We fall down before the Lord and we repent because he says by his power through that repentance, he will do all of these things. And that is the message of one crazy book, Zechariah. (laughs)